Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This podcast features Peggy Orenstein at Washington County Library, R.H. Stafford. Award-winning journalist and feminist icon, Peggy Orenstein is a leading voice in the national conversations around gender norms and expectations. Her influential exposés include Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the New Girly Girl Culture in 2011, and Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape in 2016. Ornstein has also penned a best-selling and candid memoir about her personal struggles with infertility and motherhood. She has been featured on a dozen major media outlets including Nightline, CBS This Morning, The Today Show, and NPR's Fresh Air and Morning Edition. In 2012, the Columbia Journalism Review named Ornstein one of 40 women who changed the media business over 40 years. Her latest project is a wide-ranging anthology, Don't Call Me Princess, essays on girls, women, sex, and life. Library Journal, among a host of other publications, praised it with a starred review, sure to enrich the reader's understanding of everything from abortion laws to breast cancer to pornography and body image. I'm going to hold this. I'm just looking around this space and thinking I probably have to keep it G-rated tonight, which is <laughs> not easy for me <laughs> when you write about sex. It's not easy to keep your talks G-rated, but I'm going to do my best. I'm a native Minnesotan. Um, I'm from Minneapolis, which is why absolutely nobody in my family except my cousin from St. Paul is here tonight. <laughs> Can you believe it? Um, but uh, Minneapolis, um, the Twin Cities are, are, have been very influential to me and very influential to my work. And really, um, when I was living here growing up was when I really feel I became a writer. And what I'd like to do tonight, I guess, is read um, a few sections from Don't Call Me Princess from different um, points in my work. And then I think I'm also going to read something that hasn't come out yet that's coming out in November. Um, so we'll see how the time goes. But I wanted to start with the introduction to this book because it really talks about why I became a writer and why um, it's important to me to be a feminist writer and why it's important to me to be a feminist writer in this very moment in time, which is an interesting moment. So this introduction is called Two Girls in a Room. When I was 17 years old, a senior at St. Louis Park High School in Minnesota, go Orioles, I was summoned to the counselor's office. Ms. Peckham, a middle-aged woman with bronze-tinted hair and thick plastic-rimmed glasses, was to me the essence of clueless adulthood. So I was shocked when she asked me to write a story for the school newspaper on students who were teen mothers it never occurred to me that one of my peers might have a baby, though given that there, there were 2,100 of us, maybe it should have. Truthfully, I didn't even know kids my age were having sex. A couple of days later, I met with another 12th grader, a girl I'd never seen before, in an empty classroom. She told me about life with her two-year-old daughter, the secrecy, hardship, and shame. Her mom babysat during the day while the girl was at school or work at a minimum wage job. She didn't go to parties. She didn't go on dates. She didn't have many friends. Hardly anyone knew about her double life. It was brave of her to trust me with her story. I promised I wouldn't use her real name in the article. And what's more, I'd never reveal it to anyone, not ever. When we finished, she thanked me for listening. 
But if you see me around, she added, still smiling, please don't say hi. There's no reason that someone like you would know someone like me, and I don't want anyone to ask any questions. Then she left the room, disappearing into the crowded hallway. This wasn't, I realized, simply a cautionary tale about the perils of teenage sex. It was the story of the two of us, girls who through choice or chance were on very different paths. Even more, it was about how class, status, and stigma limited the new opportunities of girlhood, about how far women had come and how far we still had to go. That was, I think, the moment I became a writer, the moment I recognized the power of individual stories to illuminate something universal, something essential about our time. Nearly 40 years later, the stories I'm most drawn to telling are still about women. I came of age in the turbulent wake of feminism's second wave. Education, work, relationships, parenting, sexuality, all had been abruptly transformed. What could be more compelling than documenting the impact of that? When I'm honest, though, I have to admit that I was pushed into my subject matter as much as pulled, that, the const that constraint played as much of a role as interest. I graduated college eight years before Anita Hill would bring sexual harassment out of the shadows, over three decades before allegations of, against producer Harvey Weinstein would set off a tsunami of Me Too activism. By the way, I actually had to pull this book back because um, that happened after it had gone to press um, and it seemed so wrong not to mention it, but now I'm reading this and thinking, wow, I need to pull the book back again, apparently. Um, anyway, so when during an interview for my first job as a typist at Esquire magazine, I was told that one editor had a penchant for rubbing up against young female staffers and asked, could I handle that? Of course I assured them that I could. I kept at least six feet away from the guy for the next three years. But there were also editors there, men as well as women, who championed me, mentored me, and encouraged me to stop typing other writers' manuscripts and get to work on my own. With a few exceptions, female writers at the time, not to mention the entire category of women's magazines, were tacitly and sometimes explicitly considered lesser than the guys, less talented, less prestigious, and of course, lower paid. Writing about women, particularly for publications that weren't specifically geared toward them, meant I avoided direct competition with men while creating a distinctive niche, if one that was sometimes seen as token. And it was a pretty sweet beat. After all, women are nearly 51% of the world's population. Since we tend to be seen as female first, women directors, women executives, women politicians, I gained entree into worlds I might otherwise never have seen. Being a feminist writer, though, does not just involve whom I write about. It's about how I write, my stance relative to the reader, a skepticism about hierarchy and expertise. I generally reject authority and authorship, positioning myself as the reader's companion rather than superior, asking questions, expressing doubts, working my ideas out on the page. I want to share the journey, not just present tidy conclusions. Similarly, I decided early on that if I was willing to hold other women's lives and decisions up to scrutiny, I had better be willing to do the same with my own. If every woman's life tells a story, Mine would, too. Reviewers have sometimes referred to my first-person work as honest, especially in my essays on infertility and cancer. I'm pretty sure that's meant to be a compliment, but I sometimes suspect it may be code for TMI. The truth is, I don't know how to write any other way. Observing my own experience, documenting my successes and missteps as a modern mother, wife, woman, worker, human, is how I make meaning for myself, and ideally for others. It is also how I hope to galvanize change and progress. I'm a little stunned to find I have a body of work to look back on. Time seems to have skittered by while I focused on the day-to-day -day stuff of working, falling in love, building a marriage, struggling to have a child, and then raising her. Yet, I don't feel ever so far from the girl reporter at the high school newspaper. I'm not sure how far the world has come either. Progress seems more a spiral than a straight line, though I have faith that it moves mainly, if not consistently, in a positive direction. 
If I didn't, I wouldn't bother writing. Nonetheless, I'm struck by how many stories from years ago resonate now, at this moment, when women's political, social, economic, and reproductive rights are newly under threat. I don't know how these latest battles will resolve, but I do know this. Telling our stories is more important than ever. Not the endless churn of content featuring trumped up princesses and pop stars and famous for being famous social media creations, but real stories about real women, including women of color, queer women, immigrants, the poor, the very old, and the very young. There can never be enough stories. As for the teen mother I wrote about so long ago, I don't know what happened to her. I no longer remember her name. I've even lost the article I wrote, left it behind in some old apartment in some other city. But I still think of her courage regularly with gratitude, and I have never forgotten what she taught me. You know, reading that, gosh, I feel like every day I could read that again and say, you know, it, it never mattered more than now. No, wait, it never mattered more than, no, wait, it never mattered. Like every day, right? Um, so this book, I divided up into different sections. Um, the first part is on um, women, interesting women, just some of my favorite profiles that I wrote of different people. Um, the second part is called Body Language, and uh, it's about, um, uh, various aspects of women's bodies and particularly my own body going through breast cancer and infertility. Um, there's a section on motherhood and then the last part is on girls, uh, which is mostly what I write about. Um, and again, I was going to read kind of an R-rated section here, but I am quickly thinking no. Um, and instead, I think I'm going to read about girls in power, which seems equally germane at this moment. Um, and probably a better idea than what I was going to read. When we're alone, I'll, I'll, I'll read the other part. Just find it. Okay. Um, so this is called the Hillary Lesson. And it's a column that I wrote for the New York Times and magazine. And um, it was written actually when uh, she was run, when, when, after the um, 2008, right? 2008 election when, she, when it, she was running against Obama in the primary. Um, so some of it uh, I would write a little differently now. Um, but I think it's still. Again, um, relevant, more relevant than I wish. Uh, so this is called The Hillary Lesson. And, and for each of these, um, for each of these uh, essays that I selected in this book, I, I wrote a new little introduction. Um, and, and for this one, I just wrote a little paragraph that says, oh, how I wish that 10 years after May 2008, when this piece was published, I could write that Hillary had triumphed that sexism and ageism were vanquished in politics, because if I worried about what our daughters might have learned from the race for president back then, and then we begin. Berkeley's Fourth Street is my town's version of a strip mall. There is little you might need there, but much to want. Handcrafted Japanese paper, diaphanous Stevie Nicks-inspired frocks, wooden toys imported from Europe, one recent morning, as my four-year-old daughter and I strolled to our favorite diner, she pointed to a bumper sticker plastered on a mailbox. A yellow, veraginous caricature of Hillary Clinton leered out from a black background. Big block letters proclaimed, the wicked witch of the East is alive and living in New York. Look, Mama, she said, that's Hillary. What does it say? Let me state right off that I don't consider Senator Hillary Clinton a victim. Her arm is so limber from the mud she has lobbed during her political career that, that if, now that the whole president thing is doubtful, she may have a future as the first woman to pitch for the Yankees. So it's not the attacks themselves that give me pause, but the form they consistently have taken. The default position of incessant, even gleeful, and I admit it, sometimes clever, misogyny. Staring down the sightline of my daughter's index finger, I wondered what to tell her not only at this moment, but in years to come, about Hillary and about herself. 
Will the Senator be my example of how far we've come as women or far, how far we have to go? Is she proof to my daughter that you can do anything or of the hell that will rain down on you if you try? Voting against Clinton does not make a person sexist, not in that election, um, but uh, there, <laughs> there are other reasons to reject her. But contemplating the life's a bitch, don't vote for one t-shirts, the stainless steel thighed Hillary nutcrackers, the comparison to the bunny boiling Alex Forrest of fatal attraction, I struggle over how, when, even whether, to talk to girls truthfully about women and power. I beamed when my daughter announced her first career choice, firefighter, ridiculously proud, given she was barely two, that she felt no barriers to what was historically a male-only job. Nor did I indicate at the time that there would be anything, that, that there would be any for her. Of course, I didn't really expect her to pursue that dream. She has already moved on to scuba diver. But the truth is, if she did, she might face a life of isolation and hostility, much like Rebecca Ferris, who in 2006, after her promotion to engine driver in a firehouse in Austin, Texas, came to work to find her locker smeared with human excrement. At least no one suggested she iron her station-made shirts. In the white-collar realm, I suppose I should celebrate the announcement last month of the first woman named chief executive of a top US accounting firm. But maybe I'm just a glass-half-empty kind of gal. I mean, the first? In 2008? Are they kidding? Meanwhile, now that Meg Whitman has stepped down as CEO of eBay, there are a measly 12 women who lead Fortune 500 companies. The percentage of female corporate officers has also dropped over the last three years. And while women make up 48% of new lawyers and have hovered in that range for around a decade, the percentage of women who are law partners at major firms remains stuck at a pitiful 18. Right now, my daughter doesn't know about the obstacles she may face someday, and I'm not sure of the wisdom of girding her in advance. Even the supposedly girl-positive picture books designed to address this very issue pose a dilemma. Take Elenita, a magical realist tale given to my daughter by a family friend about a girl who wants to be a glassblower. Her father says she can't do it. She's too little. And besides, the trade is forbidden to women. The lesson, naturally, is that with a little ingenuity, girls can be glassblowers or stevedores or fill in the blank. Nice. Still, I found myself hesitating over the girls can't section. My daughter has never heard that girls can't be or that girls can't do. Why would I plant the idea in her head only to knock it down? The same quandary crops up with older girls. They're sports stars, yearbook editors, valedictorians. We have assured them that the world is theirs and they have no reason to disbelieve us. Like Clinton, our daughters are no victims. And yet, all is not quite well. Not when achieving CEO, MD, or PhD status can still come appended with a second alphabet of B and C words. Not when a woman who runs for office is accused of harboring a testicle lockbox. Clinton, whatever else she may be, has become a reflection, a freeze frame of the complications and the contradictions of female success. Her bid for the White House has embodied both the possibilities we never imagined for our daughters, shattering not just the glass ceiling, but the glass stratosphere, and the vitriol that attaining them can provoke. Both are real, so Godspeed, girls. Perhaps by the time my daughter is of age, the ambivalence toward powerful women will have dissipated. Judging by the attitudes of today's young adults, however, I'm not optimistic. According to a J. Walter Thompson survey of workplace issues published last month, while many men in their 20s show no preference, a full 40% would rather have a male than a female boss. The bumper sticker my daughter saw on 4th Street struck me as viraginous. Yet a virago can be defined either as a harpy or a hero. I have a few years before I have to explain that to her. In the meantime, I did what any good mother would do when confronted with a thorny subject. I pointed to the bakery across the street and said, hey, look, honey, want a cookie? <laughs> the other piece that it, now we are kind of alone, huh? Um, it's 
still feels wrong to read about pubic hair, though, doesn't it? I, I, I don't know. I'll think about it in a minute. But the other piece that I really wanted to read kind of in tandem and also um, right now because of the events in the news with Kavanaugh and with Bill Cosby um, was a piece that I wrote on boys. And right now I'm actually working on a book on boys. I'm doing a, a companion book to girls and sex that probably will be called Boys and Sex. Um, <laughs> If my publisher has anything to say about it, and uh, and it's been really it's been really interesting talking to boys, and I, I, I felt you know when when I was when I was going around the country after Girls and Sex came out, um, the first question I always got was what about boys, and part of me felt really irritated by the question because I thought can we just stay on girls for five minutes you know before we go back to boys, but also because the book really was about boys as much as it was about girls, even though they were um, relatively silent in it. And what I would do when people would ask is I would say, well, you know, that's really somebody else's topic. I write about girls. I've been writing about girls for 30 years. It's really not my thing to talk to boys. Um, but mostly it was because it kind of seemed hard. Like, talking to teenage boys seemed really hard for a woman. Um, and I didn't want to do it. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized, A, I'd only have half a conversation. B, as little as we talk to boys about issues around sexuality, or girls, excuse me, around issues of sexuality, we talk about boys less and now are expecting a lot more of them than we used to. Um, and C, I had been immersed in this world of young people for about five or six years already at that point, and I felt like I pretty much um, had a good grip on what was going on and how they spoke and how they acted. And, um, so, so it's been an interesting journey, and I'm, I'm writing that book now, and it's going to be coming out in 2020, so stay tuned. Um, but I am starting to spin off a few uh, small pieces from it, um, and this was the first, the first of those pieces. And I, I do need to say, um, I wrote this after the um, Grab Him by the Pussy uh, tape came out. And it was beyond my imagination, as it was, I think, for many people at that point, that um, after that, that uh, Trump could be elected president. Um, so there's um, what turns out to be a factual error. There's a, a presumption in this piece that that would never happen. Uh, oops. Um, so there you go. Uh, so this is called How to Be a Man in the Age of Trump. One afternoon, while reporting for a book on girls' sexual experience, I sat in on a health class at a progressive Bay Area high school. Toward the end of that of the session, a blonde boy wearing a school athletic jersey raised his hand. You know that baseball metaphor for sex, he asked? Well, in baseball, there's a winner and a loser. So who's supposed to be the loser in sex? That question, actually, I'll just take a break here. If you play that out a little bit, the girls actually are not the opposing team. They're the, the um, field on which the game is played. They don't even rank human status in that metaphor. That question has floated back to me over the past 10 days as the stream of revelations about John, Donald Trump surfaced. The vile comments he fobbed off as boys will be 59-year-old boys bluster. The allegations that he jammed his tongue down the throat of People Magazine reporter of, of a People Magazine reporter, grabbed the rear of a woman who was visiting his home in Palm Beach, came at a stranger on an airplane, quote, like an octopus, groped and kissed a former apprentice contestant during a meeting in his office, and barged into the dressing room of the Miss Teen USA pageant on, on semi-nude contestants, some of whom were underage. The reports have sparked unprecedented discussions in the news media of rape culture and sexual consent. Except the discussions aren't really unprecedented. They are part of a cycle of soul searching that is repeated whenever news of a high profile incident of alleged harassment or assault breaks. Robert Chambers, the Spur Posse in Lakewood, California, Glenridge, Glen New Jersey, Clarence Thomas, William Kennedy Smith, Mike Tyson, Steubenville, Ohio, Bill Cosby, Bill Clinton, Ray Rice, St. Paul's, Roger Ailes, Brock Turner. That list stops there because that was when it was published, but you could keep on going up until last week. In each case, by the time it's over, we turn away from the broader implications toward a more comforting, comforting narrative. 
The perpetrators are exceptions, monsters whom we can isolate, eliminate, and occasionally even prosecute. Certainly, such behavior is not representative of men, not by a long shot, yet neither is it entirely atypical. Sexual coercion in one form or another is as American as that baseball metaphor, a metaphor that sees girls' limits as a challenge boys should overcome. For many high school and college women I met, enduring a certain level of manhandling was the ticket to a social life. It started at their first middle school dance, when male classmates would sidle up behind them on the dance floor, grab them by the waist, and without asking, begin to grind against their rears. Sometimes the girls were fine with that, even excited by it. Still, all had, over time, been forced to develop strategies to disengage without offending an unwanted partner. They were, to a girl, deeply concerned with preserving boys' feelings and dignity, even when the reverse was not true. By college, young women told me, drunken party boys felt free to kiss, touch, and rub against them at will. You're supposed to swat them away like flies, a junior at a school in the Northeast explained, adding that the behavior is just accepted as the way of the world. I've listened to girls try to make sense of feeling like objects. Was it empowering or the opposite, and under which circumstances? I've also realized, known all along really, that they were neither the only ones struggling nor solely responsible for the solutions. Lately, I have begun interviewing young men about their attitudes toward sexuality. Most are not many Trumps in the making. Instead, they too express confusion, uncertainty, eager to fit in, yet troubled by assumptions and expectations of masculinity. Many are girls' staunchest allies, or would like to be. One 19-year-old in Northern California, for instance, told me he'd spent the summer working at a bicycle shop. The all-guy staff whiled away their days talking in what he described as incredibly degrading ways about girls. At the printable end of the spectrum, they referred to the cafe down the street, which was entirely staffed by young women, as the bitches. As in, hey, you want to go grab coffee from the bitches? He didn't participate in such locker room talk, but neither did he challenge it. I was just there for the summer, he said, so I put my head down and did my job. Yet according to Michael Kimmel, the author of Guyland and a sociologist at Stony Brook University, silence in the face of cruelty or sexism is one of the ways boys become men. I wonder if any of those snickering male staffers on the Access Hollywood bus were actually thinking, Jesus, God, get me out of here. How many reassured themselves, as Billy Bush would later claim, that they were just playing along with Mr. Trump? How many more remained mum, believing that made them good guys rather than complicit? Sometimes coercion is actually part of the script. Mr. Bush's response to Mr. Trump, Donald is good, whoa, my man, and yes, the Donald has scored, were repugnant but also reminiscent of the sports narration accompanying the old meatloaf hit, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Holy cow, stolen base. Recently, when Fox broadcast a live production of the musical Grease, a favorite high school of high school drama clubs, I was struck by the lyrics to the song, Summer Nights. A chorus of girls enthralled by Sandy's account of her school break romance sings, I'll sing it. Tell me more, tell me more, was it love at first sight? A parallel chorus of boys listening to Danny tell his versions com comes back with, do you remember what they sing? Right, tell me more, tell me more, did she put up a fight? Despite the progress women have made since the 1950s when that show was set, or even 1971 when the original musical was written, some things haven't changed. Michelle Obama was right when she said that were Mr. Trump to win the election, we would be telling our sons that it's okay to humiliate women. While the warning that assault will cost you the presidency may be the beginning of a conversation, or possibly the Supreme Court, I don't know, um, it should not be the end. Don't sexually assault women, or for that matter, don't get a girl pregnant, is an awfully low bar for acceptable behavior. It does little to address the complexity of boys' lives, the presumption of their always down for it sexuality, the threat of being called a pussy if you won't grab one, 
or the collusion that comes with keeping quiet. Boys need continuing serious guidance about sexual ethics, reciprocity, respect. Rather than silence or swagger, they need models of masculinity that are not grounded in domination or aggression. Last year, California became the first state to make lessons on sexual consent mandatory for high school students. Meanwhile, the Our Whole Lives program, a model for positive, comprehensive sex education that was developed by the Unitarian Universalist Association and the United Church of Christ, encourages students to dismantle stereotypes from a young age. The Population Council's It's All One curriculum offers adolescents lessons about gender, power, and rights within intimate relationships. And not for nothing, including those discussions in sex ed, has been proven to reduce rates of pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections. And of course, we can meet kids on their own turf with clever internet resources, such as the viral video comparing sexual consent to a cup of tea. Just because a person wanted tea last week doesn't mean she wants it now. Unconscious people never want tea. Or the sexually enlightened R&B song. Republican leaders and big donors are now distancing themselves from Mr. Trump, piously proclaiming that no one with daughters can in good conscience support him. Right. Who would have guessed that Donald Trump, of all people, would inspire a bipartisan feminist movement? Despite that tasty irony, though, if we see this moment as exclusively about girls' and women's rights, we are bound to repeat the cycle. Donald Trump, and for that matter, Billy Bush, have unwittingly provided grist for a more radical, challenging discussion about what it means, what it should mean, what it could mean to be a man, a discussion that must continue in public and in our homes long after the candidate himself is told it's game over. Okay, he wasn't told it was game over, but. <laughs> but that's sort of where, where I've been going um, with my work, and I think that that's kind of the, the lead into the next book, um, which is that, and I think it's been clear in the news lately that these issues that we've been talking about as women, everybody here, um, cannot just be among women anymore, and that it has to be about men as well, um, and boys in particular, and how we're raising our boys. And so interrogating how to talk about that and how to change that, what masculinity means, how masculinity is defined, um, the ways bond, uh, boys bond through um, discussion uh, and domination of women's bodies. I was saying, I was at a high school yesterday and I was talking to a group of boys and I said, you know, if you were just talking about sex, you'd be like saying like, oh, did you have a good time? Did she have a good time? Was it fun? Was it nice? You know? But instead you sound like you just got back from a hardware store. It's like, I nailed her. I pounded her. I banged her. I smashed her. I mean, this are, it's really weird um, to, to use those words unless you are talking about aggression and domination. And then you have to think about what that means instead of what you're really talking about. Um, and it was really um, productive to have that conversation with a group of 17-year-old boys. And I hope that it will help them going forward um, to be people who can maybe help change the conversations in their world. So that's kind of a taste. I mean, as I said, I there's other things in here about um, cancer, about infertility, about all kinds of stuff, about my favorite book that I've ever read in my life. Um, maybe some, art, some pieces that are more fun, but I thought instead, uh, for one more piece, I would read you the most depressing thing in the world. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Does that sound fun? Um, because I'm really excited about it, and I thought it would be fun to read something that isn't out yet. So this is, uh, <laughs> I hesitate to say it, it's so ridiculous. Okay, this is a travel piece about Auschwitz. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's going to be in Condé Nast Traveler. I, I told a friend of mine, I'm Jewish, and I told a friend of mine who's also Jewish, I, yeah, I've got this piece on Auschwitz coming out in Condé Nast Traveler. And he burst out, like, he thought I was making a joke. I was like, I'm, 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 no, I'm serious. I really have a travel piece on Auschwitz coming out in Condé Nast Traveler. Um, and I couldn't believe that they would commission it. But the reason I wanted to write it was, um, I was thinking a lot, my, my daughter was 14, this was last year, she's 15 now, 
And when I was growing up, I was super embedded in the Minneapolis Jewish community. And the, um, the Holocaust was, was a fact of our lives. I mean, it seemed like it had happened a long time ago, but the truth was it hadn't. And a lot of my friends' parents were survivors and we knew their stories and we saw them in a day-to-day -day way and it was just kind of in our lives as a sort of um, integrated fact. But my daughter, who is um, Jewish, but my, my husband is Japanese-American and not Jewish, um, so she's biracial, but she's been raised as a Jew, um, but doesn't know very, didn't know very much about the Holocaust, didn't know, have those people in her community, and I kept wrestling with the way that story was transmitted, or that historical fact was transmitted to me, which sometimes felt kind of too much too soon. And how you find the right moment to tell your child about the existence of pure evil, and not only about the existence of pure evil, but about the attempt to commit genocide on her people. Um, so wrestling and wrestling with this over time, um, my husband was, uh, is a documentary filmmaker and he was judging a film, he judges a film festival in Poland every few years, they invite him to judge this festival, and I'd always said I wanted to go with him, um, but the time was never right, it was always over Thanksgiving, it was impractical, it was expensive, whatever, and I decided that once my daughter was old enough, we would go um, to Poland over, while he was judging this festival, and we would go to Auschwitz, uh, and the youngest age that they allow or suggest that a child go to Auschwitz is 14. So she was just old enough to go. And uh, we decided to do that last, I bought a year ago, last Thanksgiving. Um, and this, from the second I bought the tickets, the air tickets, I began dreading it. I mean, I just, you know, I just thought, this, you know, it's just not how you want to spend your vacation, you know? And yet it felt like a really important thing. So I ended up um, wanting to write about the experience so even though it's not about women and it's not about anything else that I write about, periodically I write a travel piece and um, this is one of those. So I thought that I would just share it with you and it's coming out, uh, I guess it's the November issue so it's coming out in a few weeks. There's not a lot of illustration. Um, okay, it's called The Age of Experience. How to Teach a Child, asks Peggy Ornstein, about the existence of pure evil. There's a poem that went viral a few years back that contained the verse, the world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. I thought about that line on a foggy November morning as my husband, daughter, and I drove to the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial and Museum in Poland, the site of the largest death factory of the Nazi regime. Visiting had not exactly been on my travel bucket list, but my husband, a Japanese-American documentary filmmaker, was asked to judge a film festival in another part of the country, and since we were here anyway, and since our daughter, Daisy, and I are Jewish, it seemed an opportunity, and even more, an obligation. Still, I'd been dreading this moment the entire trip. Truthfully, I'd been dreading it since we'd made the plane reservations, and not only for myself, but for Daisy, at 14, she was the youngest age suggested by the museum for visitors. I knew the tour would traumatize her, but traumatize her how? By giving her nightmares for which there was no solace? By inspiring her to delve deeper into her heritage, identify more strongly as a Jew? By making her want to turn away from that identity forever? I was raised in Minneapolis in the 1970s, part of a small insular Jewish community, some of whom were survivors of the genocide. They told us their stories every year on Holocaust Remembrance Day in old world accents, some revealing a tattoo on a forearm. As a girl, the mother of one of my friends had been among 90 women forced into a field during a death march. When the Germans opened fire, she saw her own mother fall dead in the snow, yet had to keep running to escape. The 10 women who lived were liberated by Russians the next morning. We learned about gas chambers and forced sterilization of women, we learned about the lampshades. In fifth grade, we were shown night and fog in Hebrew school. It was perhaps a little too much, a little too soon. Daisy's Jewish life has had less context, less grounding. We don't belong to a synagogue. She didn't go to Hebrew school, 
though for two years she did, along with a friend, study religion with a rabbi. Her Judaism is more about family and holidays, something you participate in out of choice, not because if you don't, you will be accused of colluding with Hitler. I've struggled with how to tell this child that I love, whom I want to protect from pain and harm, about the existence of pure evil. There's no real right moment to mention the millions systematically murdered, or that had we been there, we would have been among them. It feels like willfully robbing her of her innocence. Nor is my husband much help. His parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins were forced into the Japanese-American prison camps, stripped of citizenship, property, savings, and livelihoods. When Daisy was eight, we attended the opening of the Heart Mountain Interpretive Center, a former internment camp in Wyoming, transformed into a museum where one of my husband's films plays on a perpetual loop. On the plane from Salt Lake City to Cody, Wyoming, I asked him what he had told Daisy about the internment. He paled. Nothing, he said. I guess I should before we get there? I had prepared us for a visit to Auschwitz, as much as one can prepare, by visiting other Jewish sites in Poland first, to understand not only the tragedy of the genocide, but the vibrancy of the community that once existed there. In Warsaw, we spent a day at the Po-Lin Museum, which traces a thousand years of Jewish life in Poland. In Krakow, we went to Oskar Schindler's enamel factory, which had, after the film Schindler's List, been turned into an interactive museum about life for both Jews and Poles under the German occupation. At that time, Jews comprised nearly 10% of the Polish population, 3.1 million people. They formed their own political parties, youth groups, and schools. There were around 150 Yiddish publications, and Yiddish theater flourished. Although anti-Semitism was endemic, as it seems to be again, and most Jews, as a result, were poor, they still made up more than half the country's doctors and a third of its lawyers. I realized my own grasp of my people's history had been pretty shallow. As far as I knew, Moses parted the Red Sea, Tevye was exiled from Anatevka, six million Jews were murdered in Europe, Philip Roth won a Pulitzer, and then came notorious RBG. <laughs> it's about an hour's drive from Krakow to Auschwitz, and on the way, Daisy piped up that she'd never studied the Holocaust in her former K through eight school. I think you should write the principal a letter, Mom, she said. I nodded. That's a good idea, honey, I replied, proud of her for thinking of it. By the time we arrived, the movie set like mist had lifted. The sun was warm, and I could smell the loneliness of the earth. Our guide, a former journalist who now works for the memorial, excuse me, press office, led us through the historic gate to its, with its ironwork sign that reads, work will set you free. Tourists snapped photos beneath, but we declined. Among other things, I couldn't imagine what the appropriate facial expression would be. Of course I was destroyed. What other reaction could there be? We walked through the barracks where prisoners had slept crowded on the floor on straw-stuffed mattresses, the one square meter standing cells of Block 11 into which four inmates at a time would be crammed upright in total darkness, unable to move. We saw the sites of medical experiments, the courtyard that ran slick with blood from executions, a gas chamber, the crematoriums. A modern day exhibit held a vertical book, thousands of pages long, inscribed with the names of all of the dead. I looked at my own last name. There were 11 pages in tiny type, rows upon rows upon rows upon rows of, these are all spelled different ways, Ornsteins, 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 Ornsteins. I wondered if any of them were my cousins. I wondered how old they were, what their lives were like, whether they'd had children, whether those children were dead too. I thought about the generations lost, the descendants unborn, and I felt my knees buckle. In another building, we filed by stacks of shoes, hairbrushes, hair itself shaved from prisoners' heads and saved by the Nazis. We paused before a pile of suitcases that towered above our heads. Names had been neatly painted on each one. Our guide pointed out a suitcase belonging to a small child, an orphan named Gertrude Neubauer. Look, he said, her birthday was two days ago. So, as it happened, was mine. Daisy wrapped her arms around me, leaned her head against my shoulder. Auschwitz was a work camp. Many died there, but it was nearby Birkenau that was built for mass extermination. 700 or more people lived in each of its hastily erected horse barn barracks, sleeping five or six to a shelf. There was no heat, no water, little food. 
typhus was rampant. Close to a million Jews, as well as 122,000 Poles, Roma, Soviet prisoners of war, and others died here, most murdered in the gas chambers. The Nazis had bombed those as they retreated from the Red Army, but the ruins remained, and it's there that we finished our day. I watched as Daisy took pictures of a memorial plaque and wondered, what more can I say? The rationality with which the Nazis carried out their atrocities is inexplicable, and of course, they are not the only ones. All people have the capacity, in one way or another, to turn hatred into ideology. We're all capable of evil, big and small. We all have within us the monstrous, the conniving, the cruel. Yet we are also capable of selflessness, bravery, resilience. There is good luck and bad, faith and its loss, sacrifice and survivalism. Faced with the test of character, what would we do? Who would we be? Knowing our past, what is our responsibility to the future? The sun was setting through the leafless trees, turning the sky lavender, salmon, and neon pink. Lights blinked on along the path to the exit, and we pulled our jackets tighter against the winter chill. We were warm enough, and we could leave this place. But before we did, our guide shook our hands. Now you too are a witness, he said. On the drive back, we were quiet, absorbing what we'd seen. I glanced at Daisy, whose eyes were closed. I thought she'd fallen asleep, but suddenly she lifted her head. Mom, I don't want you to write that letter to the principal, she said. You don't, I replied surprised. No, she said, because I think I should do it myself. The world is at least 50% terrible and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. But now my daughter knows, and truthfully, I think she is stronger for it. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Peggy Orenstein and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member with a daughter wondering how Peggy Orenstein navigates difficult to talk about age-sensitive decisions. Right, what do you do with your teenage girls? It is, I think it is, it's such a hat trick and I do share your frustration because I'm in the middle of it as well. I have a 15-year-old daughter and, you know, we have been having conversations together, she and I, since she was three years old in her little three-year-old way about um, you know, what, it, what people are trying to sell you, why they're trying to sell you that, um, what they want you to be, what self-object... I mean, I, my main thing is I've really tried very hard never to, you know, to slut shame or, or say people are bad for doing things or wearing things, but talk about what we know. Like when, when we were going through a little um, phase like that, I, one trick that I do, which may or may not work for you depending on what you do for a living, um, is I, I will say to her often, you know, I'm thinking about adding this to my talk. Do you think it will resonate with girls your age if I said, you know, or I've been thinking about talking, you know, I'm going to talk to this group of girls. Do you think if I talk to them about the impact of self-objectification on um, their academic performance and show, you know, talked about this research about that and then I tell her about the research, um, then that, you know, what do you think about that? And I feel like that's, you know, that's what I can do, um, is just keep giving her the information, giving her the information, giving her the information, um, and knowing that, hoping that she will go through these various phases um, with intelligence and grace. And certainly, um, she has probably the most open, sexually open dinner table conversation of any child in America at this point. Um, and, my husband's not thrilled about that, I might add. Um, but, because my husband and I are also now working on a possible um, uh, kind of documentary project involving girls and sex, and so we are sitting at the table all the time <laughs> discussing it. And I think it's been um, a really ultimately positive thing for her. I see that her friends are starting to ask her a lot of questions now. She'll come home and say, my friend asked me this, did I say the right thing? Um, so I feel like she's getting it. I also feel 
like despair when I look at the you know the videos she's watching or the videos. More so, honestly, it's when I look at the videos that boys are watching these days. Like I just looked at the, um, you know, this is my job, right? So I have to watch a lot of porn. Um, I have to watch a lot of videos. I have to w watch a lot of TV shows and movies that I otherwise have zero interest in. Um, but you know, Billions or Silicon Valley or Rick and Morty or you know, Family Guy or all these things which are so insidious. And then, and then videos, the, the, the biggest video of the week, 100 million views in a week was this new Kanye video. And like, yeah, it's easy to demonize Kanye, but still 100 million views. And what it is is him and Lil Pump um, dressed as Minecraft characters. So they're dressed as characters from a children's video game. And they're like kind of shuffling down a hall, which presumably they built in the video game or something. And there's alcoves lining the hall, and in every alcove, there is a naked woman, faceless, on her knees, with her hands bound behind her. And I can't tell you the chorus of the song, because I think there's still children around here, and that would be wrong. Um, but let's just say, how can I say, you're such an effing hoe, and I love it, is the entirety of the chorus over and over and over as they're walking by these women. And I just thought, damn, the terrorists have won. You know, like what, what can you do when, um, so that's why I think it's important to talk to our girls, but like more and more I'm feeling that if nobody is having these conversations about female objectification with boys, then we are completely missing the boat. And I've been thinking about how you know, with our girls, as I'm sure you did with your daughter, from the, from the get-go, you're focused on this idea of wanting to make sure that you provide these countervailing influences, of giving them books, of thinking about their clothing, of giving them movies, of giving them, you know, whatever will be positive and brave and strong and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But nobody's giving little boys those things. So little boys, you know, they don't get a feminist onesie when they're born, and then they go to school and they're not reading books with feminist protagonists, and then they start watching sports and the only girls are cheerleaders, and then they go to G-rated movies where only one in three speaking roles is uh, by a female, and the percentage of um, skin showing is the same as in R-rated movies for women, and then they start watching Rick and Morty, and then they start watching Kanye, and then they start watching porn. What are they supposed to think? Why would they? I mean, it's, what's, what's more miraculous, I think, is how many really great young men there are who don't objectify women. But for those who go the other way, it's completely understandable. So it's really people with sons now that I'm trying to focus on, but that's what, yes, I share, your, I share your issues. And also on my website, which is just my name, um, there's a lot of resources around body and sexuality and that sort of thing for parents and for kids themselves. This audience member asks how Ornstein is able to keep up with pop culture and understand what kind of media and ideas young people are consuming. Oh, you know, I have friends who are teachers, high school teachers, and they're always sending me stuff. And, and kids, too. I have interns. I have um, a bunch of high school and college interns. And they make sure that I know what's going on. Because yeah, I, I would be completely clueless without them, honestly. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to know. Um, and I certainly don't, you know. It's, it was easier with the girl media, because even though a lot of that is reprehensible, too, I would, run, you know, I would be much more likely to see it and be participating in the conversation and reading about it. But um, it's much less likely that I'm going to, you know, see the latest little dicky video, but yeah. It's hard, you have to, you really, if you have kids, you have to keep up, and it's hard to keep up. I know, and it's no fun. I don't wanna watch that, I wanna watch my own stuff. This next question is about how young girls are becoming aware of self-esteem and self-worth. When you talk about self-esteem, you have to think about what confers it, so, if for girls, the main source and locus of their self-esteem is their appearance, then they're gonna feel really great if they're looking hot and told that they're hot by guys. But that's not really where you want them to be getting their self-esteem, which is why I think it's really important to have conversations about self-objectification. What I do see with girls now, and I think this is one of the upsides of the internet and the conversations that are having on it, is that you know, there's, a, there's kind of a new wave of feminism among a lot of girls. And sometimes it's a feminism that goes against my grain. Sometimes I disagree with them. Sometimes I argue with them about it. Sometimes I think that they're you know, either 
you know, being blind to something or they're being sticklers about something or whatever, but they are really engaged in it. And one of the things that they're very engaged in are issues around um, body and sexuality. And, uh, and particularly around consent and assault, which has been the big one. But for me, one of the things that I wanted to, to talk to them, to surface about them and talk to both parents and girls about, because I talked to a lot of girls as well, is I think obviously this discussion about consent is critical, pivotal. But at the same time, I was not raped is a very low bar for a sexual experience. So when I was doing Girls and Sex, I was really focused on wanting to know what happened after yes. And I didn't want it to become completely subsumed into the assault conversation. So I really wanted to, for, to talk about how girls were being sort of systematically disconnected from their bodies, taught that who they were was how they looked, that their sexuality was, was appearance-based rather than embodied, um, and what the impact of that was on them, and the ways that we had, um, that by doing that, we endangered, not only diminished their joy a lot, but also were endangering them because they were seeing sex as being about men or boys and something that they did for boys, to boys, instead of something that they were doing together and, and, and in a reciprocal way. Um, and I, I talk a lot in the book about the rise of, I think it's okay, the rise of oral sex um, among kids and how, how that was the biggest change of the 20th century, that it became less intimate than intercourse, but specifically female to male, not the other way around. And the girls would talk and say, you know, well, it's no big deal, and it was, you know, it was how you how you made got, got social connections, you got um, you boost your status, you could go. It was a way to go further without having intercourse. All these different things, and I would start hearing those these stories so much that I started saying to girls, you know, what if every time you were alone with a guy in a room in a room, he asked you to go get him a glass of water from the kitchen, but he never got you a glass of water or if he did, it was really begrudging, you know? You would not stand for it. And they would burst out laughing and say, well, when you put it that way, and I'd say, well, why wouldn't you put it that way? Why would you be more willing to perform a non-reciprocal sex act than to get somebody a glass of water from the kitchen? Um, and just that conversation was really interesting. Our next question comes from an audience member inquiring how to combat systemic shaming and policing of women. Yeah, I wrote a piece, there's a piece about that in here. Um, that's about dress codes, and, it, and, and I talk about that exact thing, that when we are threatened by, what threats, threatens us about boys um, has to do with being a thug or, or defying authority, and what threatens us about girls is um, if they express sexiness in these ways. And so I think when you're talking about um, dress codes particularly, uh, I think it's unsupportable and, and must be challenged anytime somebody says to a girl, you're going to distract the boys. That is just an unsupportable argument because there is only one place that goes, and that's to she asked for it. And boys need to be learned to be made responsible for their own, you know, their own selves and their own responses. Um, however, I think, again, and, and I think, you know, when we do that, we also we make teachers into sex police, we make administrators into sex police. It's ridiculous. Um, I think instead, again, having a conversation about um, the impact of self-objectification with girls is really important because I think, you know, without that, we're sort of selling them a bit, bill of goods about what liberation means. But also that dress codes, um, there's, some, there's some really great um, work on how to create a gender fair, not just gender fair, culturally fair too, um, dress code. Uh, that is respectful about different groups' hairstyles, is respectful about, um, you know, if you're going to have uh, no, every, every, every um, rule has to be, have a reason, has to be explained, um, has to be applied to everybody, and also uh, should have student input. So if you're going to have a dress code, I think that's how you start that discussion so that it doesn't end up being um, a sexual policing situation for, for girls. Um, I just wanted to go back now uh, to what I, what I was saying before to that question, which is the other piece that um, I wanted to add about that with girls and sexuality was about the ways that we disconnect them from their sexuality is what I called the American psychological clitoridectomy. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that 
when, um, when parents have their children, there's research that shows that we're more likely to uh, name all our baby boys body parts. So you'll at least say like, here's your pee-pee, something. But with girls, we're more likely to go from navel to knees and to leave like, you know, this whole situation unnamed. And there's really no better way to make something unspeakable than not to name it. And then kids go into their puberty education classes, if they have such a thing, and they learn that boys have erections and ejaculations, and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy. Not the same. Um, and they see that, you know, that internal diagram, it looks like a steer's head or a George O'Keefe painting or something with a female body, and it grays out between the legs, right? So we never say vulva, we never say clitoris. No surprise, fewer than half of teenage girls have ever masturbated. And then they go into partnered experiences, and we expect that somehow they will miraculously believe that it is about them, and that they will miraculously be able to express their wants, their needs, their limits. So we, we set them up for this inequality through this false idea that if we tell them that their sexual experience should feel really great to them, um, that then you know they'll find out that's true and they might go do it, when the reality is that when girls are educated about their body, when they understand their responses, when they understand their pleasure, when they feel in control of their experience, they, research shows over and over again that they make better choices, they have fewer partners, they enjoy themselves more, and that they're safer. So by denying them um, that knowledge, we're actually uh, harming our, our girls. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what's Peggy Ornstein's favorite book. Oh, my favorite book? Mrs. Mike? Do any of you know Mrs. Mike? Yes, you know it? Yes, since I read it as a girl. Yeah. Wow. There's women of a certain age. Um, so, well, I have two. My other one is Tree Gross in Brooklyn. But, um, but this piece was about, I've, writ I've written about Tree Gross in Brooklyn too. Mrs. Mike was this adventure story I'm gonna kind of break your heart now, just so you know. Um, it was an adventure story about this girl, this real, based on this real girl named Kathleen Mary Flan uh, O'Flanner. I can't remember her maiden name, but it ended up being Flanagan. She has pleurisy. She lives in Boston at the turn of the century. She goes up to the cold north of Canada to get rid of her pleurisy, marries a Mountie at age 16, and goes off for a life of tragedy and adventure and um, and it was the most romantic and also the most adventurous thing I could imagine. And it was my favorite story for years and years and years and years. I would read it all the time. I read it to my husband before we got engaged to make sure, like as a kind of a gauge to see if he was all right. Um, and then I thought, I, was, I, I had this idea of like, it was made into a really bad movie. And I thought, maybe I could make it into a movie again. Maybe I could write a screenplay. But I figured the authors who were a husband-wife couple, you know, would be long dead. Um, the book came out in the 40s, and uh, it turned out that they were not only alive, but that they lived um, in Marin County, which is right across the bridge from where I live in Berkeley. And so I wrote them a letter, and they invited me over for tea. And we ended up being, I ended up, they ended up being very close friends until they died, which was, um, I don't know, maybe three or four years later. Um, and they had the most amazing, I mean, you can read about it, they had the most amazing life, but the thing that was kind of horrifying was it turned out that they had made up most of that book. It wasn't true. Yeah, I'm sorry. And it just broke my heart. I mean, I had thought that this book was real, and they were like, well, not exactly. And I was and like, I'm going, wait, but what about this? And I'm like, and then I looked and I thought, oh my god, it was in the fiction section. I never noticed. My brother had stolen it from the Anthony Junior High School Library. I found it you know, in his room. And, um, but their story ended up being so inspiring and their marriage so remarkable that um, they kind of supplanted Kathleen as um, my heroes in that way, as my role models in that way of people who lived a big life without fear. Um, and I was really honored that uh, when they, when Nancy died, the wife, they, they read, the, they printed the piece and, and handed out a memorial. And when Ben died, the Times, New York Times called me up and asked me um, for quotes for their obit. So I ended up being like sort of their number one fan and biographer and that, that really, that really did my heart good.
So that is that story. Thank you all for coming. That's kind of a good place to end because it's a great story. Uh, and uh, yeah, have a great night. That wraps up our Washington County Library RH Stafford event with Peggy Orenstein. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Eli Saslow at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Eli Saslow is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and a leading voice in the discourse around the resurgent white nationalism and how to combat it. His first book-length treatment of this subject, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist, hit shelves in September. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.